0: Hi, everybody. Go check out my friends at Sonic Science CBD. They're a full spectrum hemp based CBD manufacturer out of Renton, Washington that produce phytocannabinoid rich products using the entire hemp plant using pharmaceutical based CO2 extraction techniques. CBD, for those of you who don't know, is a non intoxicating remedy for chronic pain, anxiety, insomnia, and other inflammatory conditions. Sonic Science makes tinctures, topicals, flower products, and even pre-workout, which is my personal favorite. Go check out their Facebook group, Sonic Science CBD, to learn more. Also, check out episode 8 of the Roscoe's Wetsuit podcast, in which I interview Sonic Science CBD CEO and founder, Tim McDougal. All right, welcome to another episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. Back with me on the show for a part two, I have my good friend Sam Tolman on. Sam, welcome back.
1: Hey man. Hey, nice to be back.
0: It's fun to be here too. Absolutely. So on the last show, we talked a lot about kind of you know your experience in Zen and and getting into neuroscience. Uh, what I want to focus this show about, you uh, you recently started a job, um, basically working for, is it a psychologist?
1: Is a psychiatrist.
0: A psychiatrist, okay, but okay. And basically, if I understand correctly, you're sort of doing these these brain maps, these EEG or quantified EEGs. So basically, looking at brainwave activity of criminals who are basically on death row is that an accurate depiction of what you're doing
1: absolutely yeah yeah i started about a year ago um got brought on um as the lead technician for um it's kind of we're working with also the specific organization is the ptsd institute um but it's really run through uh, forensic and clinical psychiatry here in Seattle. Um, and the name of the psychiatrist that uh, runs it is Dr. Richard Adler, who is a fairly respected psychiatrist um, in the forensic field. So basically that means uh, in legal
0: cases uh, or in criminal cases. Yeah. Right. So and who, who is employing him? Or who is contracting him to to do this kind of work?
1: It's various things, but generally... Uh, actually, so ...these patients. But most of the work that I um, is because uh, defense lawyers have contacted him um, to do some sort of assessments and testing on their clients to basically assess their uh, mental aptitude. So it's another way of saying, like, um, reassessing their culpability, reassessing their level of fault in a legal matter. And generally, as you mentioned, uh, it's maximum sentencing cases. So in places that have the death penalty, fortunately here in Washington, we don't, don't have the death penalty, but uh, in the I haven't, they do have the death penalty and some of these will be death
0: penalty cases. Mm, okay. Okay. And I mean, I'm super curious as far as, you know, cause when we've, you know, in, in each of our past experiences, when we do brain maps and, you know, we're kind of, we, we see certain things and we're like, okay, this is like a sign, you know, we call it like, you know, a signature for, you know, anxiety. We see a certain pattern that, that pops up, you know, or, or with depression, you know, that, that asymmetry, um, you know in the the frontal lobes right as far as the the alpha amplitude I believe um, but is there is there a signature for psychosis or like I'm just so curious when you told me about this like is there a way that we can definitively say whether someone you know sort of was acting on their own volition
1: yeah well one what- Thing, one thing, there's a couple, there's a lot in there. So let me first start by saying, uh, even like for example, you mentioned uh, there might be a quote-unquote signature um, for different conditions that we know about. And actually, I'll put conditions in air quotes as well, um, because for example, when you say depression, um, right now that's that's the diagnosis that uh, unfortunately many people have. But actually, when you really think about it, depression is a symptom. And ideally, in a better world, we would be able to say, oh, here is actually, uh, maybe at a biological level, or at least at a more root level, what's going on that's causing you to feel depressed. Because depression is a symptom. And right now, we're basically, uh, people can get diagnosed, at least by the DSM, if they have the depression symptom uh, in a couple of different areas of life. It's not really that enlightening. I mean, it helps so that you can then maybe make certain prescriptions or uh, do undergo different treatments. But really, it's not that specific. So when you say there's certain signatures, it's complicated because, um, for example, with depression, yeah, you mentioned uh, there's an alpha – Um, kind of amplitude asymmetry in alpha in the frontal part of the brain that is one kind of marker. But there may be various different things that actually lead to the symptom of depression um, that cause somebody to be depressed. So that is one thing that you can see. And it's important for me to make that note as we kind of go into that conversation, because it doesn't necessarily work to say, oh, well, all depressed people should probably have this. Uh, it's more complicated than that, because as we were saying, depression is a really different symptom and a very unspecific diagnosis.
0: Yes, absolutely agree. I mean, I, I almost view it as more so like a diagnosis of depression. I feel like I'll talk to some people and it'll they'll almost tend to think of it as if it's like, they have uh you know like uh the flu like it it has like something that it's like they have some kind of like infection or something that it's like okay it's there like maybe that's not even the best example but I think people tend to think of it as something that's um if they get diagnosed with it oh that's just the way I am like that's just me I'm, I'm depressed I'm anxious like Whereas, no, you're, you're experiencing depression, you're experiencing anxiety, but based off what we know about the brain and its ability to change, you don't have to be experiencing those symptoms.
1: Absolutely. Well, and it's, it's very, it's complex and difficult because, this morning, because I was kind of having a down morning. Uh, and, you know, this period of my life, I've been having some down days and I actually have uh, at previous moments in my life moments at uh, previous periods of my life struggled with depression. Um and I this morning I was like not feeling so good. And the that word popped up in my mind and I was like, oh man, so interesting that I would go into a story of saying, Wow, I regularly like it seems like maybe I'm feeling a little depressed. That's like there's a lot packed into like saying that to myself. Uh when in reality it's like, oh yeah uh, for the past few weeks, like seems like in the morning I have a little emotional dip, and actually later on probably it'll come up. Even right now I'm feeling fairly good. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's tricky. Like it can it can very much define a person. And actually, just relevant you saying earlier, there's a quote I really really um, that I'd love to read from the book The Body Keeps the Score. Um, by Bessel van der Kopp, who's a famous psychiatrist, um, and it's right along with what you were just saying, of saying like people look at uh, the word depression and the diagnosis depression the same way that they would look at um, other forms of bodily illness. So this is the quote: uh, Psychiatry aspires to define mental illness as precisely as For example, cancer of the pancreas or streptococcal infection of the lungs. However, given the complexity of the mind, we have not even close. And this is like right in line with what you and I are talking about right now, which is, can you look at, for example, an EEG and say, ah, it's clear. This is what's wrong. Um, And we're getting closer. We're we're getting closer. So there's certain signatures, to use the word that you use, that are becoming more well known. And in my work uh, with Dr. Adler, our focus is largely on fetal alcohol syndrome. So and it helps to be that specific because when you can be that specific, now you can look for very very specific, nuanced, like repeatable. Uh, data points that you can see from brain to brain, Um, rather than saying major depressive disorder or something, which is like we were just talking about, very unfortunately, like a loosely defined diagnosis uh, or symptom based. But when we're looking at fetal alcohol syndrome, we can see some very, very specific areas in the medial prefrontal cortex that have kind of arrested development. Um, so yes, the answer is yes, there are certain things that you can see, say, wow, that area of the brain is very significantly impacted. And what I would like to say is impacted in such a way that you can't necessarily, it's not that the person's all the time going to be a mess or going to do horrible things all the time. But maybe can't reliably be capable of healthy behavior. But maybe is not reliably capable of healthy behavior. That nervous system.
0: Interesting. So, so are those the cases that uh, Dr. Adler is that the cases he chooses to take on is people who are being, you know, charged with some major crime, you know, some maybe facing the the death penalty in other states, but people who who have a history of of fetal alcohol syndrome is that
1: yeah he's he's definitely uh he's an expert in fetal alcohol syndrome so there's other cases that he and and we take on um but that's really that seems to be the sweet spot and especially because there's now a growing I mean especially because of our work a growing legal precedent in those types of cases. To be able to say all right, look, we can clearly see there's a scientific precedent now. There's pub, we've published papers um, that show, hey, this is a clear pattern here. So we know, we can pretty much confirm that this person actually does have fetal alcohol syndrome. And there's also a lot of around, okay, people with fetal alcohol syndrome, Suffer from these things, um, and that holds up quite well in the court, so for that reason, that's a focus and because he's an expert, but there are some
0: other cases that that we've worked on, yeah, okay, so just to play devil's advocate for a second, so sure. not obviously not everyone with fetal alcohol syndrome is going to go out and do a mass murder or rape, or so how how even if two people have fetal alcohol syndrome, how do you say, one, you know, someone who acted in a way, um, maybe they didn't have complete control over their behavior, but how can you say that, you know, they can use... I don't want to say use that as an excuse because not to take anything away from that condition, but how can you say that that is what is causing or that is what caused them to to commit a certain crime?
1: Yeah, so I'd actually... I think maybe you look at it with the risk um, and like you said like not every single person with fetal alcohol syndrome that's gonna go out and commit some heinous crime um, and so first of all there might be differing levels of severity of impact on the brain and theoretically I, I can't say with confidence because we haven't published a paper on this, and we haven't specifically studied differentiating it, although we have case-by-case basis seen this, um, but theoretically, there should be differing levels of impact on the brain, differing levels of severity that you that should be measurable in the same areas that we're measuring the impact in general on the brain. So that's the first thing, is we can see severity. And that severity, although you know a jury is not going to be an expert in being able to say, oh, we know that that, you know, is different than the brains that we saw. But, for example, when Dr. Adler is testifying, he can speak on that level of severity. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is when you look at risk factors. Uh, So fetal alcohol syndrome is one huge risk factor. But there's going to be a lot of other things, too. There's going to be major environmental factors that are going to play a role. Uh, no matter what, a person with a significant, you know, or recordable, diagnosable amount of fetal alcohol syndrome, they're going to have some behavioral effects. There's going to be some result that is going to be unfortunately unsavory uh, on their behavior, and on their uh, experience in life. But there's a lot of other risk factors. So, unexpected. Um, you know, like what they're exposed to within their home. Um, And very, I mean, we can go down the list of various other risk factors that when you play it in, and that's how these cases work, it becomes a narrative. So you can, and not only the cases, but actually people's lives as well. So you have a life narrative and that life narrative, when it becomes a downward spiral, um, then you have some more of these heinous crimes. Uh, And often in many of these cases, you have additional uh, drug abuse or uh, traumatic brain injury. So there's various other risk factors that play in that create a pretty clear picture of, okay, look, how could we rely on this person to have healthy behavior? And how can we fault them for not having healthy behavior?
0: Right. That's that's really interesting. Can you can you walk me through like the process? So say someone decides or their family, I don't know how it works, but basically someone hires or gets Dr. Adler on the team. What is the whole process as far as, you know, you guys do the brain map, you guys analyze the results. How does that then get translated to a judge and jury? And and I'm curious as far as have you actually been there when Dr. Adler is do you, do you actually go to the, the courtroom when he's testifying?
1: No, I don't. Um, yeah, so here's the process. Generally, it's a public defender, um, and often these crimes are quite public. But the thing about uh, these maximum sentencing cases is they also take some time. Um, so generally, I'm not going in, for example, to take a recording immediately after it's happened. Um so what will often happen is a public defender will do some initial assessment uh, or some other psychiatrist has done some initial assessment. Um, there's going to be a kind of looking over of all of the medical records. Um, and then particularly, not only, but particularly if fetal alcohol syndrome is indicated, um, then they may send me an or you know, other conditions that we might be able to see more easily, more clearly on the QEEG. Um, And then at some point, especially as trials are nearing particularly, I will get sent in because it's much more valid if it's a recent uh, or semi-recent recording. Um, So often that's a good amount of time later. Uh, This is not, I'm not going in immediately after it's happened. I'll then take the recording. Um, I may do some initial analysis and, and speak with Dr. The majority goes to um, one of two different PhDs that we work with who are experts in the field because I'm not a PhD. Um, so it's quite important I had to have an expert level of analysis and testimony. So while I have a lot of experience, we're talking about what's going to hold up at the highest level of scrutiny in the court of law. Um, so that then goes to, um, somebody with a lot of experience at the PhD level that will do this analysis. Um, he'll kind of have a conversation with Dr. Adler. He'll go back and forth about what they're seeing. Um, and then that gets sent to, again, generally the defense. Um, And from there, when it comes time for the trial, Dr. Adler will almost always be called as a witness, uh, and then he'll basically testify to
0: what he's seen. Okay. And is it always, he's always defending the person, is that correct? Or is, is there ever a case where it's like, okay, we're actually not seeing the markers, so this person actually is liable for what they did or is it is he always playing the part of of putting you know defending someone
1: it's so yeah it, it's pretty much always going to be in the, a defense circumstance that doesn't mean that he won't be questioned by uh the other side um certainly he is but you know if If we're if we don't see results, so generally it's the defense that's made the inquiry into having this testing done. So if there's not a kind of result that's going to be useful for the trial for them, then generally, uh, um, you know, there's not. But that that's that's very rarely the case because, as you and I have talked about. this whole mental health thing is generally connected to uh, like criminal behavior and this whole mental health thing is also generally connected to what's going on in the electrical activity of the brain. So you're generally seeing a correlation there, which uh, Dr.
0: Adler can speak to. Right. I'm curious. So, I don't know, you know, obviously having not uh, me having never spoken to him, but I'm curious just from you, you know, your motivation in doing this. I, I assume, and I think we've had a conversation previously where you've kind of told me about, you know, sort of why you wanted to do this. Um, but I'm curious, can you just kind of explain, like, is there, like, do you do you feel that um, that there are a lot of people that are kind of tied up in this criminal justice uh, system who you know, really aren't, you know, completely responsible for their crimes? Because the way I see it personally is, it's sort of like, and I'm going to say something controversial, but as far as, you know, when it comes to the, you know, all the press coverage that's been going on with, you know, the school shootings, it's like, you know, people try to make it, oh, it's, it's guns, it's this, it's that, but it's like, okay, it could be, could be all, it probably is all of those factors, but how can you, how can you say that, like, someone like that, how can you say that they, like, like it's, it's always a mental health issue. To okay. me, like, me or you could not fathom ever going into a school and shooting a bunch of innocent kids. Like, we, our brains don't even function, like, we would, we would not only know that yeah, that was horrible yeah. to do, yeah. but people,
1: even if, right, go ahead, go ahead.
0: It will, even if we were deluded enough to think, I want to do this, we would probably think like our prefrontal cortex would step in and be like, well, uh, it's probably not the best idea. That's probably not going to give me, uh, you yeah. know, the result I'm, you know, probably going to put me in jail or get me killed, you know, like, so, so it, is it, is it something like that where do you, do you see that? I mean, do, do you, I guess the question I'll pose to you is, do you think that most people in the criminal justice system have some kind of mental illness? mental illness some kind of mental disorder that is kind of you know swaying their behavior in some way
1: without a doubt and also you know this is it doesn't need to just be you know my opinion actually there's research on this uh, that the majority of people that are like convicted of serious crimes do have various mental health conditions often more than one um so it doesn't, we don't even need to go off my opinion on that one. Uh, and I agree with you that oh, – I feel like there was a question that you asked earlier that I was going to get to, but we can just go for this one for now. Um, yeah, that, that people are kind of ignoring the elephant in the room. Now, certainly, I am definitely um, of the mind that gun control needs to be a serious issue that's talked about, right? Because even if you do uh, – have somebody with mental health issues. Well, if they can't get access to a weapon, then the damage that they can do is a lot decreased, and the loss of life is going to be uh, decreased. So that seems to be one obvious angle to come at it from. But the other obvious angle is exactly what you said it's a mental health issue. And perhaps the reason there's various reasons that people don't talk about. It. One is, is it's Two, is people don't know what to do about it like we're totally we're at a major major loss with what to do regarding mental health um so i think it's easier to talk about other issues um like if you identify a huge issue and say oh man like we really need to get on top of mental health which is true and then the next thing you say is but we don't really know what to do. Well, that doesn't really look good for anybody like policymakers, for example. Um, no one necessarily for the field. Although I think generally people are motivated in the field to try and make a difference in what ways we know we can. Um, yeah. I mean, when it comes to making poor decisions, I think it's something that we all do. And I, I'll go ahead and something even more controversial than what you said, which is that I don't actually necessarily believe – sh- I think one time we got in a, an extended argument about this, um, which started off as a conversation and then it became an argument. Uh, I don't fundamentally believe that anybody is really in, quote-unquote, control of what they're doing. Now, I think most of us are – our nervous systems are primed and capable of healthy behavior. I think is what it comes down to, which can support us and support others, because uh, we're pro-social creatures. Um, but I, so then when it comes to people that end up in jail, I think their nervous system, nervous systems are not primed for this type of healthy behavior. They're not capable of reliably healthy behavior. Uh, that's what it's on to. I mean, many of us are really fully in control. And the way that we're not in control is different. You and I might not be in control, and yet our nervous systems are capable of running in a way that's smooth with the rest of society, and hopefully for ourselves. Uh, people with serious mental illness that end up committing crimes are not in control and they're not in control in such a way that really winds up bad for a lot of people.
0: Yeah. I, well, we won't get too into, to, uh, you know, uh, rehashing the argument or else this podcast may go the rest of the day, <laughs> but no, I do remember the conversation we had. And I, I think I may be kind of gravitate gravitating a little more towards that view. Um, I mean, I guess my, the way I look at it is like, we're all, somewhat in control like there's the whole I mean I think it's a myth you know like we use a certain percentage of our brains and you know but but along somewhat similar lines I think you know say say give it like let's say there's a number you know say say a hundred percent we have a hundred percent control of everything we do every single action and I I agree with you I don't I don't think that's possible because you know I'm I'm sitting here talking to you, but I I don't know what's going on in my you know periphery. I don't know you know, maybe I could look out the window and see a bird flying by, but I'm not you know while I'm talking to you I, you know. So we're never like in complete control. I don't I don't think at all. Um, and I think even like someone like me or you who who is you know I well I guess I shouldn't speak for myself, but for you I guess mentally mentally stable enough. I I don't know about myself, but. <laughs> All right. Maybe. But, but, you know, say, you know, say any of us, you know, go out, you know, have, have a a few drinks, uh, maybe a few too many. And, you know, you see societal behavior, you know, get, you know, people do things that are, you know, sometimes when they sober up, they're like, what did I do? Like, you know, is that prefrontal cortex is kind of going offline amongst other stuff. Um but yeah, I I don't know, I guess I guess that even complicates it complicates it more, you know, when when we talk about that, you know, and as far as like okay, if someone is intoxicated or if they are, you know, talk about, you know, like a like a drug like PCP or something where you know, we hear news reports about like crazy stuff, people going out and like eating someone's face off or something, you know, cuz cuz they're intoxicated off PCP and and that's something like we we know that that like you you use that and you like really do get out of control but you know it's like i i'm always like thinking okay like how how do we determine if someone is messed up enough that they're you know quote unquote like liable you know for their their own actions cuz maybe they're like maybe maybe they had say let's give it like 90% control you know just on a normal sober day but then you know they they drink a lot and then say that control gets down to let's give it like 55 percent then at 55 percent of capacity are they are they still capable of making healthy you know decision you know healthy nervous system decisions
1: and i think that's why it's sticky for me to talk about control and why it doesn't necessarily make that much sense because you know we're going back and forth about like percentages and i don't think that's really actually very scientific
0: what oh, i keep yeah, throwing the these numbers out i'm not is to
1: first is to then start to think about um sentencing or kind of crime and the legal response as um, a repercussion rather than um, punishment. So I think when you get into punishment then we're talking about like sin and we're assuming some people are bad people uh, and that gets into a whole train of thought that's not actually necessarily that productive and it certainly doesn't align with my worldview but also doesn't seem to be aligning with what we know about behavior and science. What makes more sense is to align it with what we know about behavior and science, which is, first of all, you're, you have to disincentivize people by saying, no, this really is, you know, like if you kill somebody, you actually go to jail. You know? And then the next level is, okay, you committed some crime. Here's a repercussion so that maybe there can be some learning that happens. And if you really want learning to happen, that means a lot of things for the prison system uh, that have to improve. So you can actually help rehabilitate people to be healthier, better people, and live better lives. Um, So that's the second level. And then the third level is recognizing whether somebody is even capable of that degree of learning and growth, because there is a level of damage to the brain and i'm i can't say oh it's at this level uh, but there is a level of um dysfunction that's actually not that capable of behavior and we even are capable of uh behavioral change or growth and we even saw this uh you know much less than to a lesser scale at the place that we used to work at and that's much accelerated because we're saying okay you have to make it notable change uh, in your electrical activity of your brain in in the course of five days. And it became very clear within, you know, two days sometimes, and then it would later be confirmed, yeah, it really does not seem like this person's nervous system is going to be capable of creating a change in that period of time. So that's the other thing that you have to start to factor in is, okay, without making people like a bad person or a good person. Circumstances find people where they find people. Um, what's the best response there? There has to be serious consequences for sure when somebody commits a crime because people have to be disincentivized and people have to do learning. And then once the crime is committed, okay, how can you help facilitate that learning?
0: What I think would be really interesting I mean, you brought up a really good point as far as it just made me think, you know, as far as the criminal justice system, it's like it's very much based off, you know, punishment. We're not really, you know, rehabilitating these. Like oftentimes I feel like people, you know, go to jail and it just like hardens them up. You know, it like makes it so they're like the they become these like savages that that, you know, they they get back in normal society and they can't even function because they're like so in that that jail mentality or whatever. But what I think would be so interesting is if, you know, someday in the future, we, you know, basically like mandated that that someone who did something, you know, some heinous crime like mandated, okay, they they have to do neurofeedback like they have to learn how to take more control of their nervous system. You know, if we got to a point where that became reliable enough to to be, you know, a, a therapy to help these kind of people. but. I think, you know, taking the, the neuroscience knowledge we have, I mean, I think it has it has so many applications, but I would love, have you ever had any conversation with um, Dr. Adler as far as like what to actually, you know, if, if there's kind of like a, what we can actually do as far as sort of rehabilitating these people, like especially the ones that are in jail?
1: Absolutely. Well, one conversation that he had relevant to me uh was, of course, going in and, and doing neurofeedback with people. Uh, and then as part of, you know, for example, a defense can say, hey, when we did the first recording, uh, you know, the brain looked like this. This person's brain looked like this. And their brain was like this. Then over the course of a few weeks or a few months, you know, in this many sessions of neurofeedback therapy, you um, now the recording is looking like this and their behavior is looking like this. So that's, that's cool. And more importantly, you know, you help that person uh, regulate their nervous system better. Um, and I will say, we, I don't want to go to extremes because there are things going on in prisons. There are things going on in prisons that are helpful and rehabilitative. There's also, like we were mentioning, there's a lot of, like, barriers to that. Um, and, and I think uh, the people that work in prisons have a really difficult job, and they do an amazing job of it. Um, but certainly there's also a fair share of fairly vindictive people um, that are, like, not necessarily trying to do the most to help rehabilitate people. And that I think comes out of a belief that yeah that person is a bad person because they've committed a heinous crime. Um, but I even with the people that I've seen, I have seen like people that have been that have committed these heinous crimes, and that have spent time in therapy while in prison, uh, and doing various things and getting different um, medications and do seem to be much more capable of, of healthy behavior. So I won't say that like it doesn't go on at all, but I think there's a perspective shift that, that could be useful.
0: That's actually a, a really cool thing you brought up. It reminds me of like, I mean, I've talked now through my current work, I've talked to a lot of um, you know corrections officers and a lot of them have actually got very... Um, sort of uh, have become very cynical about their work um, simply because they see all of the guards around them, you know, treating prisoners with such, you know, disrespect. And there's so much like corruption that often occurs in these prisons. And, and they're, you know, these people, you know, go in, you know, and I I think most people have good intentions, hopefully, and they go in and want to see, you know, these people, as you're saying, you know, at least get you know some kind of therapy get their lives somewhat back in order um but yeah i mean if if you go in with the perspective of like okay i'm a prison guard i i didn't do all of this stuff i'm a good person these were bad people like how can you how can you act in a way that isn't you know going to be like condescending and and I, disrespectful to these people
1: and perhaps you know um again i'm saying this and knowing for a fact, I've met some really incredible people that are doing that work.
0: Absolutely. But, you
1: know, risk being all these like internal biases, uh, and we do various things to kind of reinforce them or kind of fight against them and, and make ourselves feel better about things. So, for example, the other risk would be that um, somebody goes into that line of work to make themselves feel better about the ways that they don't feel like they're a good person. Mm. Um, and then that becomes an even more volatile situation, and that definitely exists as well. But it's like all things, you know, where humans are involved, you have a mix. Like it gets messy. You have some really incredible, beautiful, powerful situations, and you have some uh, very small, um, kind of ugly, mean situations. Mean doesn't you saying just is the word evil because then that gets into uh, saying like right or wrong or good person or bad person.
0: Right. Okay, so what's what's like the... What, what are people saying? Like, you know, people, you know, the judges, juries, you know, uh, people like, you know, who, who don't have... Who've never heard of a QEEG before. What is their reaction when, you know, someone like Dr. Adler goes in a courtroom and... Basically is like, you know, based off what we see in this person's brain, you know, and, you know, the history of fetal alcohol syndrome, this person, you know, based off what we see is not, you know, fully in control of his actions or or however he phrases it. But but what is Are people like, oh, this is just some weird mumbo jumbo neuroscience crap that I don't understand. Or people like, okay, there's real scientific proof. Which I mean, I've I've seen a little bit of it, and it sounds like you're actually doing, you know, research, which is awesome. But what what what's sort of the public opinion right now?
1: Sure. Well, I will say as a disclaimer again, um, I'm not in the courtrooms, so I'm not seeing people's reactions directly. Um, but from what I know, from reading transcripts, and just from the state of our work right now, it's a mix. Um, and certainly there's a lot of fight against it of, um, you know, like uh, the the lawyers on the other side of the table will fight against it and say exactly what you were saying. They're saying, oh, this isn't valid. Is, you know, there's no precedent for this, which, of course, is not the case. There is a legal precedent for it. Um, and I think you even you even see that in, in, like, for example, I've spoken to other psychiatrists that are... Quite disparaging of QEEG. Sure. Um, so it is, uh, I think, it has been used unscientifically and, and it doesn't necessarily have um, the most uh, rigorous history, perhaps, is a way of putting it. So for something like fMRI, is much more respected. Um, because there's a level of precision that goes on there but also because of the way it's been used it doesn't have the same history of usage with um, like so many people have gotten their hands on EEG uh, and are able to kind of make statements and be unscientific because they can afford an EEG and all of a sudden they have a scientific tool and they can say, "Oh yeah, yeah, I see this," and they're, you know, maybe, maybe they are saying something that they're seeing, and maybe it is within one of the frequency bands. Uh, and then they generate large sweeping statements of saying, like, "Oh yeah, you know, last time I saw this," uh, and you know, I think both of us think of one or two people like that. Um, that you, you can start to make sweeping statements that are quite unscientific. So it's definitely an issue. Uh, And we need to go very slowly because this is the process of science. It's very important um, of saying, okay, this is what we do know. And it might just be a little sliver. For example, fetal alcohol syndrome. This is what we do know right now. This is what we can clearly say, yeah, that's that's an indicator. uh, And we can predict it impacts behavior this way. So let's speak to that. Let's be really strong about the things that we can speak to and also really open about the things that we can't speak to.
0: Absolutely. I I think, I mean, just, just hearing, you know, kind of that, because this is all, you know, the first time I'm hearing this from you, and it's like, you know, I had a lot of these questions of like, you know, how do you determine, you know, someone's culpability or whatever, but but the fact that you guys are doing such a, a sci- you know, approaching this in such a scientific way, I think is definitely you know, going to benefit, you know, the whole field of, of sort of that, whatever you want to call it using the EEG with, with the criminal justice system. But, but you bring up a good point that there's probably, I mean, hopefully not as many people, but there, I'm sure there are people, as you've said, who've got their hands on this and are probably actually doing the field a disservice when they go and, you know, say that, you know, they, they make certain claims that, the the you know other side of the the courtroom is going to easily just tear apart because they're unscientific. I think that's is that a barrier you think to like the progression of this sort of? It's not,
1: it's not even that that stuff per se makes it into the courtroom, but that is like what has fed a general feeling of EEG uh, uh, or QEEG not being a reliable tool is like a history of. It's great that EEG is affordable. Uh, It's it's actually quite important. It's going to make it a very important tool going into uh, this next era of mental health, which I hope we're – and it seems that we're moving into. Um, But it's also an issue because then you have – and and it's not well regulated. Uh, I also can speak to um, the certification that I have in – uh, in EEG, it's, I won't say it's easy to get, it's not easy to get, and certainly you need to work with somebody who has a field, of but it's not at the level of scientific rigor that like many other things would be.
0: Are you talking about the BCN? Yeah, 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 I, I just did that too, and I, I would agree with you. I mean, it, you know, the, the test was challenging to some degree, I guess, but. Not it's not like going to med school, right?
1: The only really the only useful part about the whole process is the mentorship, uh, and that then depends on what kind of mentor you get. I mean, you know, the course the course. I like uh, the course I did. It's in there, yeah. but even the course, it's like, hopefully all of that would be covered by a mentor and is recovered by a mentor and is in much more depth with a mentor. So the whole process is basically a mentorship process, in my eyes, and that mentorship process—it depends who you have as a mentor. So you know, it's like I think we
0: could do better. I think we could do better. It's definitely an issue. Right. I think it comes back down for me to a point I made in the first part of the podcast, where you know, my my sort of theory on this you know, EEG or whatever these neurotechnologies is, it's like, you know, it's just a tool that can be used for for good or bad, but it's all about who's actually the one in charge of it. And it's like, you know, you could have some idiot who who doesn't know what they're talking about and is actually going to make all of these broad sweeping statements that, you know, aren't, you know, and that's the problem is, I think it's, it's so much like, I really do think there's certain people in the field that have so much knowledge and they really are like brilliant educated people with numerous master's degrees and postdoctorates, but uh those I think it's it's really those people's sort of almost responsibility to be the ones like getting this information out there. Like I was just reading this this textbook. It was like the six hundred page textbook on on QEG that I found laying around at my work, but it's like yeah. something like that is like, like no one, no one even told me about that. I just, I just was like looking around my work and happened to find that. Like, I feel yeah. like that's something like everyone doing this should read. Right. But, right. but you don't have Absolutely. to. Like, like, yeah. I mean, that's like, it doesn't even take, like, we don't, we don't have to have this BCN to do what we do. We, we could, exactly. I don't, There's there, legal, we, the, we, we don't, know,
1: wouldn't we even have, have to. Have the certificate.
0: Yeah. So fully, oh, you like do You do have to legally? No, there's not. Okay. not I'm
1: okay. Hopefully, respected individuals will require Like, for example, um, I would never be able to have the role that I have now without a BCN. But, right, like, there's certain things that would be very helpful from a legal perspective, too. Like, all of these, these things kind of need to come in and mesh together. So, yeah. Mm hmm.
0: Is there and and it's fine if if we can't talk about this because I'm sure there's some you know a lot of confidentiality here. But can you give me any example as far as maybe someone who you know you know and not going into specifics or whatever. But it, it, can you give me an example of of someone that Dr. Adler kind of uh, defended and maybe seeing like kind of seeing how their their outcome in the legal system sort of improved or at least changed because of some of this work. Is there any particular example you can give me?
1: I won't go super in-depth about it, although um, it's all uh, public records, so it's not um, super, super confidential. But, um, yeah, there there have been people I think of like level of specificity here yeah. yeah i mean suffice it to say like um maps that i have taken that he's then gone and testified with have actually uh, been weighed and oh i there was a quote i think from a judge during the judge's kind of final uh breakdown of the trial um Basically was saying, you know, one of the key pieces of evidence here uh, was the QEEG, um, and that person did not get the death penalty. Um, so there's been various things, um, you know, unfortunately there has been. We have done work. I don't, I have not done any, uh, any of my work with somebody that's a school shooter, but I know he has done work with people that have that have. have Done school shifts. Um I have done work with people that have, uh, you know, murdered people within their own family. Um, so, certainly, like, it is, uh, you know, these are very serious cases. But you also have to think no reasonable, healthy, like, person that's in control at any level of their behavior. Uh, or capable of healthy behavior, as another way to say it, would ever do that. I mean, like, it would barely even cross the mind of someone. You know, so you, like, that should be an obvious, right? But instead we turn and say, wow, that must be the most horrible of person. Right. In the most horrible type of distress and so incapable of controlling their behavior. That's not the way we think about it. Instead, we think about it as, wow, that person must be some sort of devil or demon. Yeah. Uh, but it's like, like, look, it's like right in front of our eyes. That person is not the person that's the devil. That person is the person that's in hell. Uh, so that's, I think, that's, the way that
0: we should look a, at it. That's a really good quotable, That right, what you just said right there. That's yeah. That's a tweet right there. I like that. Uh, I got I got to just ask you what what is it I'm so curious what is it like to actually like go and like ha- like do you, do you have like a conversation with these people or, like that like say you are informed of a case and there's some guy that you you know that you know killed his family like you were you were saying like what 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 is that like like interacting with that person like that must be wild. Yeah. Um, it's sobering.
1: Yeah. I have to say, and I've generally more recently made it my policy, um, to not try to look at the cases beforehand. Uh, certainly, you know, there's information that I need and if it comes, uh, in the email, I'm not like, Oh, I can't see that. Um, you know, it's part of the job. Um, but I also don't try to seek out, you know, what did this person do? Um, I go in and I do my job, and I try to do it with kindness. Also, I try and do it just seeing the person, and often it can be helpful uh, to just see the person if I don't necessarily know what they they've done. But if I do know what they've done, I still go in and just try to see the person that's there. Um, And generally, it's a person in a lot of pain. Um, But for example, with this person who. Kill their family. Uh, Yeah, that one I did know about before. Actually, that was my first. um, That was my first uh, work that I did for Dr. Adler. That was the first. map yeah you into the deep end. Yeah, um, (laughs) it was intense. And I remember going in, and and I spent a few hours with uh, with this person. And that it was very sobering. But I think the most impactful part about it, you know, it was like, I went into this situation, crazy, like maximum security. It was my first experience uh, kind of being double fenced in and being like uh, constantly being watched by other people, being escorted. Um, and then sad this one event in their past about. And it turns out they were actually like a really nice caring, kind person who had a lot of remorse for what they had done. And many years had passed, so I will say also that this was, in this case, it was an appeal trial um, which is not not the bulk of the work. But this was an appeal trial of somebody that had been sentenced to death. Um, And so uh, over a decade later, I think it might have been two decades or close to two decades later, um, this person is sitting there feeling a lot of remorse and really aware of what they had done.
0: Interesting. So you could you could tell that it was really genuine, that it wasn't just them putting on an act to try to get a lighter sentence.
1: Well, absolutely, because they, they know, first of all, that I, that has no impact. Like, okay. I words so they know that also so yeah. it's just a one-on-one interaction and actually we didn't even directly speak about it is the other thing we kind of skirted around it uh around the topic so at no point were we having an upfront topic about i was like oh you know how do you feel about the fact that you did that <laughs> yeah that no, <I'm> <laughs> at all um but there were kind of conversations that happened um around like oh you know uh, you know my my child was kind of like that and there was like a little a little like there was a significant amount of sadness around it, and you know, I didn't try to broach that topic. I let this person go into it as much as they like and respected what they said about it to me. but there was a clear degree of um, sobering seriousness around, yeah, this is this is really what happened. this is not a nightmare, this is not uh, a fault. False reality, like I'm not living in something fake. Uh, this is something that happened. I did this, and um, this is the reality that I'm living with now. Man, so that kinda, really, yeah, that big impression on me.
0: Yeah, that's got to be fascinating. I mean, just going in there and and seeing the kind of stuff you do. Um, so I wanna I wanna wrap this up, but I hope that this kind of you know people who are who are listening and and watching this i hope this you know at least gets a dialogue going cuz yeah. the whole show you know i always say it's like i'm not this is not in it like a show where i'm teaching people something like my goal in doing this is you know to get a dialogue going about like different things that i tend to be interested in and think are are valuable and i think some of the stuff we said or we talked about is, is like a, it's like a paradigm shift in a lot of ways in in terms of just viewing mental health and, and justice reform and, and neurotechnology in a whole new light. And I mean, I, you know, I'm obviously fascinated to see, you know, where, where you go with this and, and hearing about all the, the things that end up, you know, going on in, in your career for however much longer you're, you're doing this kind of work. I think it's going to be you know, hopefully, hopefully it's going to really change a lot of people's lives and, and, you know, prevent a lot of suffering.
1: Well, that's the hope. And I think like the last thing that I'll say is, um, we kind of like, we're getting near to this topic earlier, but the one thing that it's really motivated me on is like finding better that we don't really know what we're doing in mental health. You know, we have some, we have some hammers and sometimes there's nails that work, um, So SSRIs are an example. We used to have no tools, at least from a medicine perspective. We had much better tools from the perspective of uh, taking people from a community and living from a community perspective and living healthier lives. So that was better. But we used to have no tools from a um, medication perspective. So now we have some tools, but they're not quite as specific as they could be. And we don't quite know as much about them as we could. So this has really opened my eyes to the fact that we're really trying to figure this mental health thing out. Uh, Spending is at an all time high and levels of depression and anxiety are at an all time high. 30% of people that um, are treated in our mental health system for depression, for example, 30% don't even respond to any of the treatments that's treatment resistant depression. So, we're really at a loss uh, with what to do here. And the people that do respond often have a lot of side effects that are unsavory or that they're not particularly. Sensitive. So current passion uh, and, you know, what I'm hoping to study uh, going forward and on this Fulbright that I've applied for is uh, other ways of coming at mental health that are starting to um, be more recognized and uh, show a little more promise Um, but you know that remain kind of on the outskirts and one of the big ways is um, through different classic psychedelics so Mm. that's kind of an
0: interesting area going forward that could be a a, whole I was just gonna say man that's a little teaser yeah well absolutely I'll absolutely get you back on the show and yeah we could do a whole show just kind of centered around those kind of emerging therapies We'll yeah have I just like to a... what's that?
1: We'll have a little more of a break before that podcast.
0: yeah, yeah, right, right. yeah, this, these two will go together. Um, and I think they go together nicely. so um, if you guys did enjoy the show, um well actually i'll I'll ask, is does Dr. Adler have any kind of website or or would you direct anyone if if they're curious about learning more about the work you're doing, the work he's doing, anywhere they should go?
1: Um, he has a Twitter. Uh, so you
0: can
1: okay. look at his Twitter, Dr. Richard Adler. Um, I don't know his handle, but you know I'm sure if you look him up that way, you'll, you'll find it pretty quick.
0: Right. Um,
1: the website is it's not really for people that are interested in the work. It's more interest. Or it's more um, for clients or people that are uh, looking for us to do this work. So. Hmm. Further resources. Oh, maybe I'll send you some. We can we can uh, talk about it offline, and and I can send you some different books. But um, no, I'd, I'd say yeah, you can you can check out his Twitter if you like, and uh, yeah, just stay stay in tune with what's going on with
0: uh criminal justice system. Sweet. Maybe we'll put. You you said you guys published a paper.
1: Yeah, yeah, there are,
0: yeah. Maybe I can put that in the in the show notes.
1: Totally, totally.
0: That'd be super cool. Awesome. Well, if you guys enjoyed the show, um, go follow us on Instagram, Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. Uh, we're now on YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, iHeartRadio. So any platform you guys want, it's Roscoe's Wetsuit um, is the YouTube, and, and you can just find Find us through all those other platforms searching Roscoe's Wetsuit. So go like and subscribe. And, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy the show. Thanks so much again, Sam.
1: Cool. Peace, Toby.